BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hello, hello, hello. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And once again, for the zillionth time, I am your host, Liv. And I am here with you in my favorite of seasons, spooky season. That's right. It's October, which means I try to dedicate an entire month's worth of episodes to all things spooky. Because I fucking love spooky season. And thus, you all get to also. You have no choice. I'm sorry. I'm not actually sorry. It's spooky season. This week, though, to start out our spooky season with a bang, I thought I'd revisit all of the spooky seasons that have come before. This year generally does mark five years of Let's Talk About Myths, baby, after all. So today's episode is clips and stories from every spooky season episode from years past. And honestly... I had so much fun putting it all together, and I just know you're all going to love it. Like, listening back to some of these had me laughing out loud at my own jokes uh, way too hard. Probably is embarrassingly hard, given they're my own jokes. But for real, I made a Ted Bundy joke when we get to the Tantalus clip, and, well, you'll hear it. It's good. I'm allowed to say this because I recorded that episode five years ago, so I'm basically talking about a different person entirely, you know? It's like it's not me, I hope. For the rest of spooky season, we also have some amazing conversations coming. On Friday, I'm talking Ovid's metamorphoses, but specifically the way he depicts the witches, Circe and Medea, because it's dark and fascinating, and I had a wonderful guest to go through all of that with you. Then later, curses and monsters and so much more. I may be running low on spooky content when it comes to the myths themselves, but I have some amazing people to share even more spooky content with you all. And isn't that all we really need anyway? This is episode 183, Monsters, Magic, and Mayhem, Five Years of Spooky Season. (laughs) 
We begin with one of my all-time favorite spooky stories. A ghost story complete with clanging chains and groaning ghouls. A haunted house. This one comes from Pliny the Younger, the same man who described the eruption of Mount Vesuvius which killed his uncle dad, Pliny the Elder. So you know he's famous and maybe we believe him explicitly? (laughs) Kidding, don't ever do that with ancient sources. Pliny the Younger tells us about a house in Athens, a very large and spacious house. The house, it seems, has a reputation for being, well, what we would call haunted. In my source, it's referred to as, quote, a bad reputation and pestilential. Pestilence is always a good sign. The house was notorious. The sound of clanking iron and rattling chains would echo from it during the night. Should you be standing near the house, the sound would seem far away at first, but it would seem to get closer and closer to you before it was as though the source of the sound was next to your own ear. The next instant, the ghost himself would appear. The ghost of this old, large house in Athens was an old man. He was too thin, emaciated with a long, scraggly white beard. Like any good ghost, it was he who was wearing the very same chains one could hear rattling throughout the house, shackles still locked around his wrists and ankles, though they were attached to nothing, and he moved quite freely. People lived for a time in the house in Athens. It wasn't long before sickness, though, and sometimes even death, would follow them for their lack of sleep and the horror they experienced every night. Finally, it became deserted. No one would dare attempt to live there, not with how many people could tell you the ghost they'd seen and all the terror it induced in everyone. It lay empty for some time. But not everyone who came across the house knew its story. Athenodorus, a philosopher, once arrived in Athens and went in search of a place to live. He found the house and learned how inexpensive it was, Fortunately, he was suspicious, and the entire story was told to him. It didn't deter him, though, for whatever reason. Curiosity? Disbelief? Either way, he took the house and prepared to spend his first night in it. He set out to spend the evening writing. He figured it would keep his mind from the house, and so it wouldn't be able to invent any odd sounds or happenings. But even with how occupied he was... The chain started to rattle loudly around him. He covered his ears, still attempting to block it out, but it only grew louder and louder, and finally Athenodorus couldn't avoid the horrible sounds of the ghost shackles. Athenodorus looked up from his writing and saw him, the ghost, exactly as described. The man stood above him, stringy beard hanging low, his body so thin you could see every vein, every bone. He was horrifying. But it seems Athenodorus couldn't be horrified, and he motioned to the ghost to just give him a minute before going back to his writing, ghost still standing close in front of him. Eventually, Athenodorus couldn't avoid the ghost any longer. He rattled his very loud chains just above Athenodorus' head, so he finally gave in, picking up his lamp and following the ghost. He followed the ghost through the house to the inner courtyard, where it, quite suddenly disappeared. Athenodorus marked the spot. The next morning, he told the city officials about the spot and suggested they dig there. Sure enough, they found the bones of the man who haunted the home, chains and all, shackles still tightly around them. Bundling the bones up, they took them away and buried them correctly, and the ghost never again haunted the oh-so-infamous home in Athens. Next, our favorite witch, because what would spooky season be without a little of Medea and her witchcraft? One can't tell a thorough story of Medea without touching on what makes her unique. 
She is not just an angry, vengeful woman, and she does not have the powers of a goddess, but she does have powers. Medea is a witch, a witch from a family of witches. So let's start by talking about that family. Magic in ancient Greece and in their mythology can vary. Later in the ancient world, they started using the word magia, which is where the English word magic eventually comes from. But long before the Greeks had the word magia, or probably magia as I think about it anyway, they had other concepts that, in terms of how they saw things then, were considered to be forms of magic. Namely, what they called pharmaca. This is the magic of Circe and of Medea. It's also simply where we get the word pharmacy. Because this type of magic is the very idea of concocting potions and the like out of herbs and other natural things. Circe and Medea, though very different from one another, both were absolute masters of this craft. Members of a small circle in the mythology. This practice of pharmaca is not widespread in the stories from ancient Greece, but these two women are some of the most famous and most impressive examples of masters of pharmaca. And a bit of transformative horror now with the Miniades, the daughters of Minias. The daughters of Minias choose not to worship Dionysus. Quote, Bromius, Laius, and the twice-born, and the one who has two mothers, blazing lightning sun, and Nicias, and Thionius the unshorn, and Linnaeus, and the planter of the vine that brings such joy, Nictelius, as well as father Elelius, and Euhan, and Iacus. Yes, those are all the names for Dionysus, and I didn't even get to include Bacchus. The daughters of Minias choose not to worship this old god, this well-traveled god, the god who killed Pentheus and Lycurgus for sacrilege, the god who rolls in on a chariot drawn by lynxes, the god who has Bacchants and satyrs following him, the god who makes Theban women cry, quote, Be with us now, O merciful and mild. If you're going to worship any god of ancient Greece, how, how? Could it not be Dionysus? But no, the daughters of Minias choose not to worship that day. They keep close to their looms, though they were explicitly told to leave them for the day. They keep their servant women busy, though they were explicitly told to let them, too, be free to worship Dionysus, alongside all the other women of the town. And completely ignoring that obviously you should worship the gods when you're supposed to, any Greek myth would teach you that. But as a woman in ancient Greece, how could you not jump at the chance to leave all the men behind and join a group of all women in the forest for a night of wine and revelry? It sounds like a dream come true. But not for the daughters of Minias. No. Instead, they sit at their looms, weaving away as good women controlled by the patriarchy, and they chat to each other about just how high and mighty they feel for not involving themselves in the worship of Dionysus. In my mind, all I can see is conservative white women. You know the ones. Maybe evangelicals. Sorry. The daughters of Minias instead talk about Athena, how they're doing the work devoted to her, weaving at a loom, and how she's the better god anyway, so clearly they're in the right. They tell each other stories as they weave, that is, in the Ovid version they do. These daughters of Minias and their storytelling lead into many of the stories of transformation that Ovid tells in his work before returning to the story of those women. They finish their storytelling still weaving away and feeling very, very sure of their decisions, feeling like they're the only good women in town, the only women not tempted by Dionysus and his revelry. Truly, don't they sound like really boring, dark souls? Anyway, as they weave and weave and their pride in themselves grows, they're finally interrupted by a roar, the booming sound of drums, the sound of flutes, of horns, of gongs. It all echoes in the room around them. As if all the sounds are coming from nowhere and everywhere at once. Then, a smell from out of nowhere, permeating the room. Myrrh and saffron. The smell overwhelms. The booming of the instruments echoes. 
smell of myrrh and saffron spreads around the women as they sit, surprised, a little unnerved, in the room with their looms. The clanging, banging, booming of drums and flutes and horns sounds all around them, a cacophony. Then the transformation starts. The fabric they've been weaving begins to sprout vines. Leaves erupt from it. The fabric itself transforms into plants, into grapevines. The deep purple fabric that was moments ago draped across the loom transforms into the deep purple of grape clusters. The room fills with grapevines, leaves, the grapes themselves. It's dusk now, outside, so there is little light coming through the windows, and even less as the room becomes overtaken with vines and leaves and grapes. The stone walls shake loudly. Lights in the room, the oil lamps flare bright. The roars of invisible animals sounds around the women, as though they're being stalked by lions, tigers, bears. But they can't see anything. They're all afraid now, these daughters, Alcathoe, Arsippi, and Leukippi. How could they not be? Their room is no longer their room. Horrible sounds echo in their ears. They try to hide. But where? Nothing is as it was. The flare of the lamps has set the room ablaze. Fire licks at the grapevines and the looms. Smoke fills the room, and it's nearly impossible for the women to see through it so hard for them to see that each of their arms has already begun to transform, in fact is already deeply inhuman by the time the women notice. Their arms are becoming wings, but not the wings of birds, featherless, thin and bony. They'd each of them grown into bats' wings. As they see this in each other, they cry out, but before they could even form words, the rest of their bodies have transformed too. They've become bats. They still try to speak, but all they can do is squeak to each other. And the queen of spooky season herself? Hecate. These are moments from that first episode I did five years ago on Hecate. So, who is Hecate? Well, aside from being the goddess mentioned by former rat slash witch Amy, in addition to Willow, in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, she's also the goddess of witchcraft, magic, ghosts, and necromancy. Basically, she's the goddess of Halloween. She's one of the origins of the idea of witches, as far as we know them. Hecate, whose name means worker from afar, was born to the titans Perses and Asteria. She was their only daughter, and from them she got her power over the heavens, the earth, and the sky. And this was not the norm for anyone to have that kind of power. Even Zeus wasn't god of the sea. Hecate spent her time wandering the earth, holding two torches, one in each hand, and being followed by her animal familiars. She was more connected with the people of Earth and Earth itself than many of the more well-known ancient Greek deities. She was, of course, most closely connected with women. She did, after all, have a habit of teaching them to be badass via magic. And speaking of five years ago, more classic Medea, because I literally cannot help myself. This is from those earliest episodes I did on her story. She's ready. Medea announces her plan. She will have Jason brought to see her again, saying that she's changed her tune. She'll tell him that it's all for the best, that she understands, and she'll convince him to let their children stay. The children then will be given gifts to provide to the princess, Jason's new bride. They'll be given a finely woven dress and a coronet of beaten gold. But these gifts will be poisoned, and they will kill the princess when she touches them, and they will kill anyone who touches the princess after. Finally, Medea appears on stage. She is riding a chariot drawn by dragons like the epic sorceress that she is. In the chariot are the corpses of her children. 
would spooky season be without slasher flicks? Or, in the world of ancient Greece, some, some very Thessalian serial killers? Because what if it's true? If we're to believe Theseus, then that one road to Athens was basically like Northern California or the Pacific Northwest in the 1970s and 80s. Just a fucking hotbed for straight-up serial killers. That, in itself, is fascinating. A note about today's stories. While the characters very much come from mythology, as well as the things they did, their stories are typically a single line somewhere. So instead, in some cases, I've elaborated. But let's be honest, possibly the most troubling, the most horrifying, spooky thing we're going to do in today's episode... Today, we trust Theseus. Polyphetes was the son of Hephaestus, or maybe he was the son of Poseidon. It's up for debate. Either way, he may have needed a stronger father figure in his life. Might have helped prevent him from ending up as he did. Polyphetes lived in Epidaurus, where he was infamous. He would rob and kill anyone who rubbed him the wrong way, which was most people he came across. And he had an M.O., his signature weapon, a bronze club. It was substantial, heavy, and did incredible damage against his victims. Anyone who came across his path when he was in the right mood would get the club. Sinus was almost certainly the son of Poseidon, something that will become a theme in today's serial killers. Poseidon may have stayed under the radar when it comes to his children. Not many were particularly famous. But when you really drill down into the man's offspring, there are some real problems. Sinus lived in the narrowest point of the isthmus that connects the Peloponnesian Peninsula to mainland Greece. From that point, you can see the Saronic Gulf and the Corinthian. It's stunningly beautiful, I'm sure. And from the story of Sinus alone, I can tell you that there are definitely pine trees there. Sinus, like his potential half-brother, Polyphetes, enjoyed a good murder. But he was a bit more creative. More Edgeen than Son of Sam. Sinus hides in the woods. He knows them like the back of his hand. This is his favorite part. Waiting. Watching. He knows someone is coming. He saw them on a path a ways back and snuck off to his hiding place. The place that always works out perfectly for what he plans to do. They appear in the trees, still a little ways off. The smile grows on Sinus's twisted face. Finally, at exactly the right time, he leaps out from his hiding place with a loud cry, jumping directly in the path of the stranger, startling them into a still silence. They're without a weapon, but he knew that. Sinus leads them to two nearby trees, both pulled down in a weird curve, secured that way somehow. We don't know the exact logistics of Sinus's modus operandi, but that's the gist. Sinus takes the rope from one of the curved trees and ties it tightly around the stranger's arms, wrapping them together at the wrists. Then he takes the rope from the other curved tree and does the same to the person's legs. Finally, with the stranger secured and surely attempting to put up some kind of fight, Sinus releases the trees and they each spring backwards, straightening themselves with such force that the stranger is torn apart, separating just below the ribcage, spraying gore around the forest. Meanwhile, Sinus watches on, laughing. Okay, fine. I know I've told these stories before, but it's spooky season, and the murderers, Sinus, and all the other men on Theseus's walk are too good. Like Skiron, yet another probable son of Poseidon. Skiron would spend his time near a cliffside. There were rocks there, and a pathway that ran between them. There, Skiron would wait for passers-by, and where he waited, he would always encounter someone. He so controlled the route between these two rocks that they became known as the Skironian rocks. And when a person passed him by on their way to one place or another, Skiron would stop them threaten them, and force them to wash his feet. Yeah, wash his feet. 
But while the person was bent down, washing Skiron's feet under the pretense of then being able to pass through this path that they needed to pass in order to get to where they're going, Skiron would kick them hard. He would kick them so hard that the person would fly backwards and over the nearby cliff. At the bottom of the cliffside, in the sea below, waited an enormous sea turtle, which would feed on Skiron's victims. The Greeks, it seemed, thought sea turtles were man-eaters. Oh, and then there's Procrustes. We can't forget about the serial killer Procrustes, yet another man on Theseus's walk. Procrustes was a little closer to Sinus when it comes to general psychopathy, I can only assume. He was another dark soul. And guess what? Yes, how did you know? He was indeed the probable son of Poseidon. I know we all want to think that Zeus is the most fucked up of the Olympian gods, but for real, Poseidon had some horrific children and some bad stories of his own. But his kids alone, my gods. But Procrustes? Procrustes was famous also for his method of killing, for he too was a serial killer encountered by Theseus, quite coincidentally, on his walk. Procrustes, though, was famous for a bed. The Procrustean bed is even a term in the dictionary, though I don't believe it was used at all in ancient times. According to Merriam-Webster, a Procrustean bed is a scheme or pattern into which someone or something is arbitrarily forced. Because, as you may recall, Procrustes had two beds, actually, and he too, like the others, would sort of just hang out waiting for passers-by so that he could serial murder the hell out of them. When someone encountered Procrustes, he would capture them and bring them to his two beds, where he planned to dole out a horrifying torture on his unlucky victims. If the person he kidnapped was tall, Procrustes would lay them down on the smaller of his beds and cut the person's limbs one by one until they fit the small bed. If they were short, well, he would take them to the larger of the beds, which was equipped with some sort of stretching device. I'm picturing the machine in the pit of despair. He would lay them down on the larger bed, attach their limbs to the machine, and stretch. Or rather, pull them apart when they failed to stretch, as human bodies are wont to do. Greek mythological serial killers were creative in their methods, that's for sure. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms, and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
once again and return to the classics, here are a few monsters from the Greek mythology monster mash of that very first year of spooky season. Scylla and Charybdis. Guys, I love Scylla and Charybdis. Just the idea of them. They're awesome. Okay, right. Details of why they're so cool. So these two monsters are, guess what? Female. Shocker. You'll notice there there are so few females on this list. That's sarcasm. They're all female. Not all. Most. But that's fine. Whatever. They're awesome. They are sea monsters while simultaneously far more than that. They are most famous, as with Polyphemus, for being a part of Odysseus's epic quest to return home from the Trojan War. The two monsters reside in Sicily, or rather, in the sea off the coast of Sicily, specifically on either side of the narrow strait between the island and the Italian mainland. Now, that location is not entirely accepted. It is mythology, after all. More generally, they resided between a narrow strait. I just like the idea that we have a real location to relate to them. Also, I've been there, so it makes me feel cool. But that's why we refer to them together, because they use the narrow strait that was their home to make it easy to work in constant teamwork to wreck ships and destroy lives. Charybdis was a kind of mystery monster. She showed herself as a giant whirlpool that would capture ships and anything else that was pulled into its powerful, swirling waters. And on the other side, her sister Scylla, a many-headed sea monster that would devour the sailors who dared to attempt to bypass the whirlpool of Charybdis by getting too close to the other side of the strait. On the other hand, there is an even more intriguing description of Scylla, and by intriguing, I mean really quite troubling. Sometimes she is said to have had the top half of a woman, female to the hips, and at the hips she transformed into a dog, and below that a fish. Oh, and she had wings. Now, I want you to picture that. You're having as much trouble as I am. I seriously have zero idea how that would work. I guess similar to an ichthyocentaur. But regardless, what is always true about Scylla is her association with Charybdis and how they worked together to really fuck shit up. Truly, they were a menace. Lamia. Lamia, which literally means the devourer. This was a tale told to scare children. I've never understood why adults enjoy scaring children into behaving, but it seems it's as old as time. Regardless, Lamia was originally a queen who ruled over Libya. Zeus fell in love with her because she was hot, you know, so super out of character of him. And they had children. Also, big surprise. And Hera got angry. I mean, you didn't see that coming, did you? Hera killed Lamia's children, and ever since, Lamia is said to steal away other children in the night. She can take her eyes out of her head and set them watching, so that the children can't escape even when she's sleeping. And she can transform herself into anything. So she's less monster, more patriarchy gone wrong, even by the usual standards. The Chimera Back to Echidna's children with Typhon, the Chimera is a badass beast, one of my personal favorites. It has the body and head of a lion with a very angry goat's head protruding from its back, and the tail of a poisonous snake, who is also quite angry like his goat and lion brethren. The Chimera breathes fire and prowls the earth, particularly waiting for shipwrecks whose victims turn into Chimera prey. She is female because, again, most of the monsters are, and I choose to take that as a compliment for females and not the insult that it most likely was. Because, of course, patriarchy. The Chimera was the mother of the Manticore and the Nemean Lion. She was only defeated when the hero Bellerophon had on his side a certain flying horse that is not a breed nor plural in any way, but simply one flying horse named Pegasus. I can't bring him up without providing this information because it truly makes me troublingly angry when people mess it up. Honestly, it shouldn't annoy me as much as it does. It's not rational. The Manticore The Manticore came originally from Persia, or Iran as we now call it. Its name meant man-eater. The Greeks took the concept and adapted it to their own mythology, making it a child of the Chimera. 
The manticore, from some angles, might have looked like a simple lion. It has the body of a lion along with the mane, but it had a human face. Picture that. And just for good measure, it didn't have a standard fuzzy furry lion tail. No, it was a massive and deadly scorpion tail. And that scorpion tail, that scorpion tail was equipped with barbs that could be shot off at any moment, causing pretty hardcore and violent damage to anyone who came within barb reach. Also, I would be remiss if I did not point out the connection to a show that, fine, was cancelled 16 years ago, but you know what? I still miss it. Manticore was used as the main big bad style military complex from the short-lived but ever awesome show Dark Angel. Once again, in favorites of mine, the tree murderer who was forced to be so hungry that he ate himself, Erisichthon. So Erisichthon set out to cut down Demeter's sacred grove and particularly her deeply sacred oak tree. He wasn't about to do the work himself, either. He was that kind of king. He handed axes to his men and told them to get to work. Get rid of this incredible, beautiful, enormous, sacred old tree, would you? The men, though, knew that what they were being told to do wasn't right. They shrunk back at Erisichthon's orders, none of them willing to get even close to the sacred tree with an axe. Fine, Erisichthon yelled, seeing their refusal. He snatched one of the axes back from his men and went to the tree himself. Snarling, he announced that he would bring down this tree even if it were Demeter herself. And with that... Erisichthon swung the axe at the ancient tree, and it hit with a thud, ripping into the bark and taking a chunk out of the beautiful tree. Just before the axe hit, though, the tree groaned and grumbled, the leaves shook above loudly. Erisichthon pulled the axe from the tree, thinking nothing of the noises it had made. But when the axe was removed from the tree's bark, thick, dark blood gushed from the wound as though it were spurting from a body's main artery. Blood splattered out from the tree and across the face of Erisichthon, who stood, axe in hand, looking at the tree. Absolutely horrified, petrified, terror-stricken, the men around Erisichthon looked upon the tree as the blood poured from its wounded bark, one of the men, bravest of them, moved to stop Erisichthon from wounding the tree further, from further sacrilege against the goddess. He makes to grab the axe from Erisichthon's hand, but the king is quicker than this man, and before the man can grab the axe, he swings it around, away from the tree and at the man's own neck, severing his head in one swift blow. Blood spurts from the man's neck as he crumbles to the ground with another thud, the head rolling off in another direction. Blood is covering the forest floor now, blood of a tree and of the man who tried to stop the monstrous Erisichthon. With another snarl, Erisichthon turned from the man he's just ruthlessly, mercilessly killed and returns to the tree, hacking at it once more with his axe. Erisichthon continues to hack at the tree's trunk. Blood continues to flow, to spurt, to spray across Erisichthon, but he doesn't relent. He's in it now, caught in his own horrific sacrilege against the goddess. He can't stop now, can't take it back, and doesn't want to. He hacks and hacks, and blood oozes endlessly across the forest floor as the remaining men continue to look on in abject horror. Finally, as Erisichthon gets deep enough into the tree, a voice echoes from within it. A strong, loud voice calls from within. I am the nymph that lives within this tree, the nymph most sacred to the goddess Demeter, she calls from inside the dying tree. I prophesy as I die within this tree that your punishment, Erisichthon, is at hand. That much she says, keeps me content in my death. 
Even this doesn't stop Erisichthon or even cause him to pause in his hacking away at this sacred and enormous tree. Finally, he's done enough damage. Ropes pull at the tree and with a loud crack, it comes down in a rush of air and leaves. There's a loud and final thud as the beautiful tree hits the earth, crushing so many other trees in its wake. Turning to more curses, and that original five years ago spooky season? The curse of curses. Tantalus. How did Agamemnon's house of horrors come to be? Well, it all started with a curse. One of Zeus's many, many, many children was a man by the name of Tantalus. Tantalus was Zeus's son, but also king of Mount Sipolis in Lydia. Lydia was the ancient region of Turkey. Tantalus was king of Mount Sipolis, and he was a friend of the gods. Quite familiar, actually, which was not exactly common for normal people on Earth, even when their father was Zeus. He had so many kids, I'm not sure he gave a good goddamn about most of them, but Tantalus was different. He hung out with the gods quite often, he hosted them, he could talk to them about his problems, they were really tight. But Tantalus became so comfortable, so familiar with the gods, that he started to question just how powerful they really were. They became real to him, which led him to believe that it might be a good idea to test them. I think you could probably tell this would not be the greatest plan, but you know, you're practiced now. Listening to me has its perks, my friends. You will never get caught up with Zeus. And if you do, it's all your damn fault because, my God, I've taught you better. But sure, maybe you could foresee that you shouldn't test the gods. But I don't know that anyone would think to do what he does. At least I hope. If you do, I think you need to go away. But we're not there yet. No, Tantalus starts small. First, he steals some ambrosia from the gods, and he distributes it to some mortals. Now, ambrosia isn't any old thing. Just last week we learned that Psyche drank it to become immortal. This is powerful shit. Ambrosia is a powerful thing, and it is meant only for the gods. They like their power exclusive. It's their thing. But Tantalus's real test of the gods was not ambrosia. His real test for what powers they did or did not have, came when he invited them all to dinner. All the Olympians were invited, and Tantalus hosted them at his palace for a special dinner. Tantalus served them a dish, a Tantalus original, you might say, something he made exactly for the gods, made just right, just to suit their needs. They sit down to dinner, and they examine what's just been presented in front of them. For the most part, they're unsure. They don't touch it. Except Demeter. See, this is the time of year when Persephone was spending her time with Hades in the underworld, so Demeter was distracted. Without paying attention, she ate a bite of the meal, not noticing that all her godly pals hadn't touched their own. They were all in shock, see? They were staring at their plates in horror. This was not a stew. Certainly not any stew that should be eaten by the gods. Tantalus, who, frankly, was a sick fuck, had killed his own son, Pelops, and cut him up into little pieces and cooked him up real nice in a rich sauce. Tasty. Now, it seems odd to have to clarify, but the gods did so much fucked up shit. But the shit that was too fucked up, even for the gods, was cannibalism and infanticide, filicide, whatever you want to call the act of killing your children. In this case, killing your children and eating them, and all to make a point that really doesn't seem worth making. Like, 
You killed your kid and cooked him and served him to the gods to, what, prove the gods did have powers? It seems a bit over the top to me, but I mean, what do I know? I don't have kids. Now, this may sound tragic, in addition to gross and insane, but actually this turned into a rare moment when the gods were helpful and nice, even if it was in response to something super weird and tragic and generally just gross. The gods banded together around this murderous dinner table, and they put Pelops together again, piece by piece. The only piece of Pelops that would never again be whole was the little bite that Demeter took before she realized. It was a little piece of Pelops' shoulder, and the god Hephaestus would make him an ivory shoulder to put in place, which I assume was otherwise just a weird gaping hole in the middle of his shoulder. I'm picturing like a cartoon, like it's not bloody or anything, there's just a hole. Like a big bite mark out of it, you know? And for Tantalus's punishment? Tantalus was sent down to Hades. But not just to the underworld. No. Tantalus is one of the rare few that was sent to live forever in Tartarus. The darkest depths of the underworld. For the worst and most awful among us. I think Ted Bundy's there too. They play cards sometimes. In Tartarus, Tantalus is forced to spend every moment seeking food and water that he'll never have. Tantalus stands in a pool of water beneath a fruit tree with low-hanging branches. Low-hanging fruit, you might even say. But whenever he raises an arm to grab a piece of fruit from the tree, the branches pull just out of his grasp. And whenever he bends down to get a drink, the water recedes just so far as to make it so that he will never get a sip. And that, my friends, is the origin of the English word tantalize, and one of the worst stories of murder and cannibalism in Greek mythology. Just one of them, though. There are more. Don't fret. And what would Halloween be without the dead? This is the Underworld. Next to Hades and Persephone's palace, on either side, are two pools of water, sometimes described as rivers or streams. Lethe, forgetfulness, which sits next to a white cypress tree, and Mnemosyne, memory. Of course, those prepared for their trip to the underworld will know to drink from Mnemosyne and not Lethe, but there are many who don't know what they're doing or are ill-prepared to be dead, and they'll drink from Lethe, living on in oblivion. Once this act has been performed, all new arrivals to Tartarus are judged. There are three judges of the underworld, Minos, Radamanthus, and Iacus. This Minos is the same Minos of Crete, the husband of Pasiphae and stepfather to the Minotaur, father to Ariadne and Phaedra, and generally a dude whose life kind of got away from him. And once he died, he becomes a judge in the world of the dead. Radamanthus is also from Crete. He's the brother of Minos. Both were sons of Zeus and Europa, giving them a bit more standing in the world. But Minos was jealous of his brother, Radamanthus, and he exiled him from Crete. From there, Radamanthus traveled to Boeotia, where he met Alcmene, the mother of Heracles, who had become a widow when her husband Amphitryon dies. Rhadamanthus marries Alcmene, becoming stepfather to Heracles, and when he dies, he becomes another of the judges in the underworld with his brother. There, Rhadamanthus judges the Asiatics who are brought into the underworld, though he refers to his difficult cases to his brother. Iacus, the final judge of the underworld, is also the son of Zeus. Iacus is the son of Zeus and Aegina, the girl that Zeus kidnapped and raped, bringing her finally to a small island off the coast of Athens, which eventually took the name of Aegina. When Iacus dies, he becomes the final judge in the underworld, and there he judges the Europeans brought to the underworld, but he too refers his tricky cases to Minos. And Minos is just for the tricky cases. His life must be fun. There are three more people who play a very important role in the underworld. I've mentioned them before, and I'll mention them many more times. 
the Arenaways, the Furies, scary, crazy, screeching females. Tisiphone, Electo, and Megara. These women live in Erebus, the darkest of dark. They're older than any of the Olympians, born of the fallen blood from the castration of Uranus by his son, Cronus. You all know how much I love that story. The Arenaways' sole purpose is to torment a certain group of shitty people. Did you kill your parents? They're after you. Did you fuck with the guest host relationship of Xenia? Who are they ever be after you? And what's it like? Well, they'll hound you. Like hounds of hell hound you. Forever. They fly around screeching and flying at you forever. You travel to the next city, they're there. A country away, still there. The Furies are hard fucking core. The Arenaways are often described as crones. Creepy old women made creepier by their bat wings, snake hair, and bloodshot eyes. Not exactly the ladies you want following you from place to place, screaming in your face. The Arenaways are so scary, so very troubling, that the Greeks believed that they shouldn't even mention them in conversation, lest you offend one. So, if they needed to be referred to for any reason, they're called the Eumenides instead. This means the kindly ones. It was the Greeks' way of pleasing these women, even if it is an ironic-as-fuck name. And that's the underworld. It's where you go when you die, it's intricate and detailed, and my god, did the Greeks have some fun ideas. If you can't tell, I think the fucking Arenaways are the coolest things. They're about to figure in really heavily into some stories, and those are the best ones. The fact that they had three angry, terrifying women there to punish you when you fucked up is just the best. And so that's the world of the dead, the god of the dead, the goddess of the dead, the king and queen, and where you go when you die. <gasps> Werewolves, you say? Okay, you didn't, but I'm about to. This is ancient Greek werewolves. Who exactly it was that Lycaon kills, cut up, and attempted to serve as dinner to Zeus varies between versions of this tale. Did he kill a hostage he had from whatever recent war or battle might have taken place? According to Ovid, it was a hostage sent to him by the Molossians. Or was it his own son, a boy named Nictimos? Or perhaps his grandson, Arcas, the son of Callisto and Zeus? Whoever it was that Lycaon killed for his plan to test the god, Zeus, he did it mercilessly before cutting the poor man into pieces and roasting him in the fire, and finally serving him on a platter to Zeus, who was at Lycaon's table for dinner as a guest. Zeus was not about to fall for this horrific trap, the instant the plate has been set down before him, Zeus leapt to his feet and raised his arm high in the air. A lightning bolt appears in his hand and he aimed it. In a split second, the entire palace of Lycaon was burnt to the ground. Nothing left but smoldering rubble and smoke. Lycaon, though, wasn't the target of the lightning bolt. He ran as Zeus destroyed everything he had. He ran and ran until he reached some nearby fields. There, in the fields, panting and out of breath, Lycaon found himself howling. He tried to stop himself, to form words instead, but he couldn't. It was only more frantic howling that erupted from within him, no matter how hard he tried. Furious, Lycaon's howls transformed as he began to foam at the mouth and growl as the transformation was complete. Fur had grown over his whole body, his limbs transformed, he'd grown pointy, furry ears and fell to walk on four legs. Lycaon, because of his attempt to test Zeus, a stupid mistake, was transformed into one of, if not the first, werewolf. 
His personality remained unchanged. Lycaon was just as horrible and violent as a wolf than he was as a human, though his anger transferred to the local sheep rather than the humans or even the gods. He was not any wolf, though. His fur was grey, just as his hair had been when he was a human, and his eyes remained the same. They still had their human quality, their fierce gaze. Lycaon was, again, possibly the first instance of a werewolf in the world's mythologies. According to some, there's a werewolf first in the Epic of Gilgamesh, where there's a reference to a former lover having been transformed into a wolf— but Lycaon is certainly the most obvious example, a detailed example of a horrible man transformed into a wolf where he continues to terrorize the region. Lycaon is also where we get the word lycanthrope, literally a werewolf. To finish it all off, some of the lesser-known monstrous women of myth. So let's finish today's episode with a look at some of the spookier women of mythology. I know I've mentioned some of these characters before, oh, so, so briefly in the very early days of this podcast, but they deserve a revisit. Lamia was the daughter of Poseidon. And whether she was always a sea monster or was transformed into one is up for debate. In the story of her transformation, we must once again face the idea that Hera, goddess of women, punished yet another woman for the transgressions of her husband. Frankly, I'm getting tired of that version, though. It's simply not realistic. I know, Zeus was all-powerful, and so could she really have punished him? Regardless, these stories just reek of the patriarchy, of the men telling the stories and writing them down— they're tainted. But still, they're what we have in the mythology. So, according to that horrible tale, Lamia was with Zeus and bore him children. Hera found out and kidnapped the children, driving Lamia to madness, the poor woman. It was believed then that she took out her anger at Hera on other children, snatching them from their beds, a boogeyman character. But again, it seems a stretch, a very patriarchal stretch. There are two versions of Lamia. There's that one, how she became a child-snatching boogeyman. And there's a version where she was always a sea monster. A great and horrible sea monster. In that, she eventually became the mother of one of the early Pythias of the Oracle, and one of the possible origins of the monster Scylla, that famous sea monster of the Odyssey fame, and the beautiful novel Circe. Lamia's name translates, according to the beloved website Theoi, to Large Shark, which, let me tell you, makes me love her so much more. I fucking love sharks. And that there's a woman attributed to being a large shark, one of the most famous of Greek sea monsters? Yes, please. Some even conflate her with the famous sea monster Keto, the mother of Medusa, the sea monster who Andromeda was saved from. The concept of Lamia, though, is tricky to pin down. Is she a shark? a child-snatching boogeyman, both. Later, her name was also pluralized Lamiae, beautiful ghostly women who lured men away to feast on their young flesh and blood. They were vampires. And speaking of, there's also the Ampusa. Sometimes in those later myths, Lamiae are considered a type of Ampusa. Ampusa are mysterious. They are monsters, that's for sure, and as far as I can understand them, they're women, too. But what they appear as can vary. There are the Lamiae in the later myths, those women who were the most vampiric of ancient monsters. Other Ampusa could take on different forms, transforming from women into monsters or things with lots of legs. Many of these forms, though, would quite simply gorge on the flesh of men. The queen witch herself, Hecate, may have even employed the Ampusa to do her bidding at times, sending them out to frighten travelers. Hecate really enjoyed fucking with people. We may not have many stories about her, but those that we have include a lot of intentionally being scary or murderous, and I kind of love it. I know you all love Hecate, so if you're needing more about her, go back to the episode from last year. It's called Spooky Halloween Special, Magic and Mayhem, The Origin of Medea and Witches of Ancient Greece. But back to Hecate's loyal ladies, the Ampusa, 
They're sometimes described as having one bronze leg and one donkey leg, or more legs. The leg situation is up for debate. Frankly, doesn't sound too scary, so I like to imagine them a bit more mysteriously. Just women in the darkness there to scare the living shit out of you, maybe feast on a bit of your flesh in the process. It's said that the Empusa, along with another class of somewhat generically ghostly women monsters, the Mormo, were often used by parents as threats. As in, you better be good or the Empusa or the Mormo will visit you tonight. This type of quality parenting has been around for so long. The fact that these types of monsters of Greek mythology, the ones people feared on a day-to-day -day basis, who they thought possible to run into on the streets and the darkness of the forests at night, were almost always women, absolutely says something about the culture, the patriarchy of ancient Greece. But frankly, I also kind of love it. So many boogie women of ancient Greece. nerds oh my gosh that was so much fun i really like i'm always trying to get more spooky season content for you all we are running low in terms of the myths i haven't covered yet i'm gonna figure something out but for now i just thought how much fun it is to just look back on past episodes and find clips and stories and all these different things it it's a real thrill for me and i think you all enjoy it too these kind of compilation i'm not doing them often but sometimes it's warranted like spooky season i've been doing spooky season for five years there is so much to look back on and just be entertained all over again so if you want to listen to the full episodes of any of these that are mentioned here or that you heard the clip from just now there is a spotify playlist linked in this episode's description and that carries all the spooky season content from the last five years of let's talk about myths baby <sighs> let's talk about myths baby is written and produced by me Liv albert michaela smith is the hermes to my olympians and handles so many podcast related things from running the youtube to creating promotional images and videos to editing and research gods so much stephanie foley works to transcribe the podcast for youtube captions and accessibility the podcast is hosted and monetized by Acast. And help me continue bringing you the world of Greek myth and the ancient Mediterranean by becoming a patron, where you'll get access to bonus episodes and so much more. Visit patreon.com slash mythsbaby or click the link in this episode's description. Thank you all so much for being enormous, wonderful nerds who want to listen to Spooky Season, who want to listen to mythology, all of it. I love you. I couldn't do it without you. I am Liv and oh, I love this shit. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events, chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. 
the all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.